Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I am Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of Breast Cancer Conversations. I am so glad you are joining us today. We are going to do things a little bit different. So today, actually, we are joined with Kristen, who is going to give us a deep dive on medical cannabis. And this is actually part of a longer series that she did for a webinar with slides that we are in the process of editing and will be sharing on our website shortly. So you can always find out more information in our content library if you hop on over to survivingbreastcancer.org. This is the raw, uncut version of our podcast because Nurse Kristen gives us so much information on medical cannabis, how it can be used, understanding the pros and the cons, the benefits and the risks, the side effects, and even the understanding and the differentiation between CBD and THC. So Kristen goes into all of this great detail. This might be one of those episodes where you have to potentially take notes or maybe stop and take a break and come back to at a later time because it is one of our longer episodes. But I did feel it was incredibly important to keep the continuity of all of this great content there for you. So I really hope you enjoy. Welcome to the conversation. I was the on-call, the crisis nurse. I would um, admit the patients with the biggest, most challenging symptoms because I was also a former ER and ICU nurse for years. And I've been a nurse for almost 17 years. And in 2016, I had a lady who was on our team in hospice, younger than me, and I'm 56 now, who looked nine months pregnant with an abdominal rare form of cancer called carcinoid syndrome. And we struggled to get her symptoms under control. I mean, seriously, it was um, requiring daily deliveries of medicines because the pharmacist was afraid in desperation she would overdose. We literally were making daily visits. She was wearing fentanyl patches, eating every benzodiazepine, Ativan, Valium, Zolpidem, everything, opiates, long-acting, short-acting, because her tumors were particularly nasty and that not only did they bulk up and pinch things, they actually secreted hormones. So one minute she'd have hot flashes, the next she'd pass out, the next she'd have diarrhea. So the key was what you're hearing from me is that this woman was the most challenging for getting her symptoms controlled. And we would do these daily drug deliveries and we worked as a team. And one day I went to deliver her medicines and I noticed her pillbox still had some leftover pills. The next week, she had peeled off fentanyl patches, stuck them on paper towels so we knew she wasn't selling them. And I asked, how are you getting by? And she was a little nervous. She was shy. She held up a little bottle with a handmade label, and it said THC and CBD. And she said, I'm using this, and it works better than anything you've brought me. Of course, I was supportive, but I had no clue. I didn't wear dangling marijuana earrings. I had fried cannabis last, you know, 15 years before, mostly. And this woman showed me a lot. She got symptom relief for nausea, for insomnia, for anxiety, for pain. And it reduced her need for pharmaceuticals by at least 50%. 
Then the big thing that spurred me to step into this more fully was after three months, the aide who would come three times a week to help her bathe because she was so swollen and she was unsteady in the bath that the aide missed measure her belly and she said something's happening and the woman's abdomen had gone down three inches and they did a scan and called it a spontaneous remission and she was released from hospice we call it graduating out of hospice and I get emotional because this was serendipity I had never seen anything like it I was clueless about things on the internet about it. I had no information about using cannabis and drug interactions, but I was in the state of Hawaii where it was legal with a card. But again, I had never really enjoyed it. I just shrugged and said, okay, it's fine. They can use it instead of beer or whiskey or whatever. But I was humbled because this woman got so much pain relief, so much symptom relief. And that I went online like a good nurse to try to find drug interaction information because this woman's swallowing this liquid. And back in 2016, I'd only seen people taking a puff or eating a brownie. And she was on this huge list of meds. And when I went online looking for drug interaction information, there was just very little until I reached scientists. And I happened to bump into the team in Madrid, Spain, at Complutense University, who had been studying the potential value of cannabinoids, both that our body makes or can be synthesized in a lab or could be coming from a plant against cancer. I still get goosebumps just saying that, arms and legs. But I first asked them, could there be drug interactions? And by the way, this this cancer fighting stuff, I don't know. So it began with a discussion about which drug pathways CYP450, they also call them CYP450, your pharmacists will know, your nurses will know, your doctors will know, you might know, your label says don't take this medicine with grapefruit juice, that's the most famous drug interaction pathway called CYP3A4. So they highlighted to me that they were aware it could interfere, but they had no knowledge of what doses. So I began to take notes. And three months later, I learned she had been guzzling this stuff. Every night in ever escalating doses, that was my introduction to something called the Rick Simpson protocol, which I don't recommend. But the key was I began to be aware that there were thousands of people around the world who were using cannabis in ways I never imagined. And when I witnessed this woman's belly shrink and a scan showed her tumors throughout her whole abdomen had reduced by greater than 50 percent. I went back to the scientists in Madrid, Spain, and I told them what happened. And I had made a note of what kind of cancer it was, neural endocrine differentiated, very rare. And they go, oh, there's a prostate cancer researcher because an aggressive form of prostate cancer can also have neural endocrine characteristics. THC suppresses that. Now I'm shocked. You know this? We know this? But there are no human clinical trials. And it's poo-pooed in the U.S. at that point, and still it's federally illegal, so it's very difficult to do clinical trials with whole plant medicine. You must use pharmaceutical grade, and that's isolated compounds, so I'll go into that more. The bottom line was that was the turning point, late summer 2016. And then while I was coming to grips with this, I was angry, I was disappointed. I thought, how could our government be suppressing this? What tumors can it shrink? And I began this dialogue 
with these researchers from around the world, both in Israel, Canada, Spain, but the team in Spain were the first ones. And then I acknowledged that I needed to give up and go have a back surgery because I had ignored or pretended it was okay for 20 years until I had nerve damage, neuropathy, weakness in my right leg. I needed a spinal fusion. I was struggling to sleep and I was on all these muscle relaxers, pain pills, sleeping meds. So when they put me off work November to prepare for surgery in December, I decided to try this cannabis stuff. And I met a, a nurse, Wendy, in Hawaii, who advertised herself as a cannabis nurse. And I'm like, cannabis nurse? And she wore the dangly cannabis earrings. She's fabulous. And she taught me how to dose. She invited me to workshops. She flew to the island where I live from her island on Oahu so I could meet her and I could believe that this was a legitimate, actual field of nursing. And she started, along with several other nurses, an American Cannabis Nursing Association, which I'm not a member of. I'm lazy. I need to get back in with all those clubs. But the point I'm making here is I witnessed the whole spectrum of possible benefits as well as challenges. Like if I went to the dispensary with my legal cannabis card, what did I want? How much would I take? How did I decipher a label? I was not familiar with varieties of cannabis, whether Girl Scout cookies or Bubba Kush or Skywalker, but she helped me understand. And I now I'm glad I never looked back because what happened was I began to join support groups where I met Abigail. And I met people who wanted to talk on the phone and share. And the first thing I witnessed, I'm just talking. The first thing I witnessed when I joined these groups was there were real people with really serious cancers who were trying everything. And there was no rhyme or reason, it seemed. It was a generic one-size-fits-all treatment. And much to my shock, there were also people, particularly young women, with a breast cancer that likely was going to respond well to hormonal therapies. And they were in denial about planning to do that. And I watched two of them go from stage one to stage four in a year. And during that, those months in that Facebook group, I began to become more active because I went there thinking somebody already had the answers that I just needed to go be a fly on the wall. But this amazing group of women at the time, it was just a couple hundred. Now they're in the thousands and I've not been online as much, but um, they were willing to create polls. So they could start out triple negative, from hormonally positive, HER2 positive. And they began to realize that they needed to differentiate because there were clear patterns I could see. I had traveled to a conference where Cristina Sanchez, a PhD researcher in Spain, who's one of the leaders in breast cancer and cannabinoid research, was attending. And she met with me for 45 minutes after because she wanted to know what I was seeing and I wanted to make sure I understood her research well. And we hugged after because she said, what you are reporting, that there is clearly more women with her two positive who tried this high dosing who surprisingly got something amazing happen. So you had this other group of mostly younger women with um, much less aggressive forms of breast cancer. I hate to say the word much less aggressive because that doesn't always hold true. But if they were 100% estrogen positive and progesterone positive and grade two or one, and it was a discrete lump that could be removed, they were much more likely to get worse instead of better on THC, big doses of THC and CBD. 
And Dr. Sanchez gave me the words of wisdom. This is the rule of thumb. And I know I'm going way beyond what you've wanted to hear. We'll focus on the sense of management, but this to me is helping you understand why I'm passionate. She explained to me that the more aggressive, the more high grade on a pathology report, the more HER2 positive it is, the more neurologic it is, and the more frankly aggressive and metastatic it is, the odds of it possibly being vulnerable to high doses of cannabis increase. No simple rules except for HER2 positive. <laughs> but the point was, there were no simple answers. And so I focused on helping women sort out their different experiences, track their details, and I asked them what turned out to be also extremely important. Has anybody witnessed any drug interactions? And suddenly the women on iBrand, palbocyclid, started raising their hands. My neutrophil count dropped when I started CBD oil. My neutrophil count dropped when I started CBD oil. My neutrophil count, over 100 women had tried adding in big doses of CBD, which they measured out. We, I interviewed over 1,200 women. I kept notes, but it was around 100 milligrams a day of CBD, and their liver enzymes went up, or their neutrophil count went down. These are known side effects of palpocyclib, also called Ibram. The key was that drug has one specific pathway, the grapefruit pathway, CYP3A4, and all I have a slide on it. That was when I began to realize that nobody was really tracking this. Nobody was really studying it. And I was there with this willing group of people. We all sincerely began to compare notes. And then a man reached out to me from Louisiana whose wife had just died of liver failure. She had metastatic breast cancer, successfully treated on chemo and therapies, had used cannabis to get through it, had a recurrence, doing high-dose rixensin oil, both CBD and THC. They disclosed this to the oncologist in Louisiana, and he handed her a bottle of ribocyclin, similar to Ibram's, called Kiskali. She was dead in two weeks of liver failure. That was when I began to not be so shy. That was when I felt drawn to never stop talking about cannabis, both the potential benefits, especially for symptom management, but I also had witnessed a case in hospice get better with a rare cancer, so I kept the door open for people to reach out. But to safely use cannabis along with cancer treatments was clearly a really urgent need, and there was a vacuum. And so I joined the American Cannabis Nurses Association. I traveled to Denver, Colorado in 2017 for the conventional nursing organization meeting. And I was a member of Oncology Nurses Society. And I actually volunteered at the first inaugural American Cannabis Nurses Association booth there. And it paid off. All of these nurses wanted to know what we knew because they said, everybody's trying this. We don't know about drug interactions. What about this Rick Simpson oil stuff? And I met a wonderful nurse named Liz Sherwood, who you'll see on my title uh, on my slide. And she was a nurse practitioner, recently retired from University of North Carolina, Charlotte, or Chapel Hill. High level, very left brain, compassionate, but also developed their integrative care program to emphasize the possible benefits of acupuncture and nutrition and things. 
bottom line is she called me after a couple months. She had taken courses that were out there for nurses and doctors about cannabis. And she contacted me and asked if she could shadow me. She said, nobody's doing what you're doing. Nobody seems to take it so seriously. And I'm kind of serious. <laughs> and she wanted to shadow me. And for three years after that, we did this tag team. We joined on calls. Um, we then joined Care Oncology together. That's all gone. I cannot, I'm warned not to say anything disparaging about Care Oncology Clinic right now. They're under new management. Let's leave it there. I'm not part of that. Neither is she. No nurses that were working there are there anymore. No very few doctors. But the key is, we stayed together because we had similar serious focus on safely delivering information to people. We broke laws because we talked to people in other countries or in other states. So it was so important. And then we began to have a growing number of doctors and nurses reach out. So we've taught hundreds of nurses, dozens of doctors, the basics. Now what I do is private practice. And what I really want to do is actually take my old slides that you'll see today pretty them up and begin to do webinars, both for patient groups, advocacy groups, physician groups. Um, but I will disclose, cannabis is not all I talk about anymore when I do general sessions because we make our own cannabinoid chemicals out of the oils we eat called omega-3s and 6s. And omega-3 cannabinoids are anti-cancer, anti-inflammatory, and we're seriously deficient because most of us don't eat oily fish like our ancestors did. And we're over-consuming omega-6 seed oils like corn oil or whatever. But I'll talk about that a different day. But that fascinated me because HER2 positive breast cancer, the one quintessential, more often THC suppressible cancer, where we understand the mechanism, we know how the receptors interact because of the work from Madrid. It's also a form of breast cancer that is very strongly linked to a low intake of fish oil fat and a high intake of omega-6. And this is turning out to be true globally, not 100% of the time. There can be other reasons, but it's almost always present. So I went all the way into studying lipids and membranes and all of these receptors that were like cannabinoids. So just so you know, I don't go out and put myself advertised as a cannabis nurse, so technically I could and probably get rich. I really believe that I, I want to make sure I can get good basic info out. It doesn't even require a consultation, but if people want to talk about more, I'm happy to meet with them. And I usually spend about an hour um, on a first call. I spend about 15 minutes at least reviewing all of their records, genomic records, pathology reports, drug lists, a little story of how they got to where they're at. And then I do follow-up calls. But today, I want to just back away from this big level and come right back down to sit with you today, answer your questions that come up. I do have some slides. I'll try not to overly rely on them, but you are welcome to do screenshots if you need to. I give you my permission. Just please don't put them out on the internet because they're always subject for editing. And I did leave Liz's face and name on these with her permission this morning because we look forward to doing these things much more in the future. I know it was a long intro and I've now put us over time, but I hope it helps you know where I come from, that I'm still a very serious conventional nurse, but it opened my eyes to the possibilities and I absolutely am convinced it's worthy of more research. But today, I'll be quiet and listen and then we'll start my slides when you're ready to share a screen. Thank you, Thank you Kristen, for, for all of that. Um, it's always helpful to understand where our speakers come from. 
and why something is so important. And I have to say that um, I encounter more nurses who are excited about medical cannabis than doctors, because I think nurses are on the front lines a whole lot more in terms of symptom management, in terms of seeing people suffer, right? And I don't think anybody goes into nursing without wanting to alleviate suffering. Um, And let me just say too, that in the times that I've consulted uh, with Kristen and brought those reports to my doctors, my doctors have always said they've never seen anything as detailed and as helpful as the report because there's no research about dosaging. And she's able to, you know, drill down into the science of it, which which is so very, very important. Um, so we do have a couple of very specific questions that I think you're gonna answer, Kristen, once you get into your slides. So why don't we go there and talk about um, really at a, at a basic level for those of us who didn't experiment with cannabis, what, what is cannabis? What are the strains? What, what's the language or what are the, the key words that we're going to hear when we start talking about this subject? Now, full disclosure, what I noticed with my slides this morning that was a little weak was that I didn't have a really basic slide talking about slang, right? Oh. Indica versus sativa. So let me go on the record right now. If you're needing a cannabis type medicine, whether it's weed from a friend, medicine liquid, medicine in a vape pen, medicine in a capsule, medicine in a flower, which is the bud. Indica is usually your friend if you're wanting ease of anxiety, pain relief, relaxation, helping you to feel sleepy. Indica, I-N-D-I-C-A, represents the varieties of cannabis that are most commonly with ancestry from places like India. And it was the original cannabis that like Queen Victoria used for her menstrual cramps and was in all of the tinctures. These were those old heavy cheech and chong kind of varieties like Bubba Kush, um, if the word Kush is in it, or uh, zombie something, or, you know, wipeout, these kinds of words that dispensary staff members, or even experienced users who use it for back pain, sleep, evening kind of use. They almost always prefer an indica because it does something lovely. It makes your mind kind of forget your troubles. Usually if you get a nice small dose that fits you. And if I take a dose at 7 p.m. for back pain, anxiety, insomnia, because my mind won't shut down, I can't imagine any of you ever experiencing that. I like an Indica product like most of us because it almost guarantees that in about a half hour, I'll be relaxed. I might be a little giggly. I might have the munchies. And if I want to watch something on TV, don't turn on something dark and scary. Watch, for me, it's like dirty dancing or blazing saddle, something that makes me laugh, something that puts me in a happy mood. And 15 minutes later, I can't even remember how the show started and I'm out like a light. Indica is the word. Sativa is much more commonly desired by people who don't want the sedation. They don't want a heavy body sinking into couch or mattress feel. And some people, sometimes those with ADHD, have a complete opposite response. They'll sleep on a sativa and not sleep on an indica. But as a general rule, remember the word indica. And strain names, while they're popular to talk about, they're worthless. What happens, I shouldn't say worthless. 
but I know the science. And what happens is whatever variety of cannabis is popular right now, it suddenly shows up in all the dispensaries. But if it's chemically analyzed, they're all diverse. And I could get 18 seeds from one plant that was sexually reproduced, and the 18 seeds will produce 18 different plants, all still called ACDC. That doesn't mean they're all going to feel the same way because it's sexual reproduction. But when people do have a plant in their backyard that has worked for them for years, and they take cuttings, and they keep reproducing it, they call it cloning. It's just taking reproductive cuttings. But the key was, you can reproduce these plants. And so most commercially grown and produced cannabis is more reliable now in main dispensaries and suppliers of products, for example, in Florida, will tend to know to test it to make sure certain chemicals called terpenes or the fragrance molecules that have medicinal effect, that there's a several of them that tend to be present in indica plants and they're really responsible for some of the benefits and changing the feeling of the THC, whereas the sativa ones might have more of a lemony or citrus scent. The indica ones might be a heavy berry scent or peppery, more earthy, stinky, skunky. But it's always a matter of trying a little of this and trying a little of that. Don't let anybody sell you a $500 supply of something. Start with a little bit and whatever it is, oral, we'll cover all of that. But I realized I didn't have a slide that said that. So I want to make sure you know. Oh, no, that's fine. And where to begin, as long as you also remember that whatever you do, you start low, go slow. And if you're nervous at all, do it on a day off. Maybe it's a Saturday or Sunday. Nobody's expecting you to answer the phone or fix the meal. And you try your medicine and we'll cover different routes and does things. I want you to be relaxed. I don't want you to be nervous if you decide to do this. I want you to feel secure and safe so that if it's a little stronger than you expected, you have the freedom to go kick back on the couch, chill out, pet the cat, and wait a little while and think about it. Because if you're in the pressured, scared situation, it changes your perception of the high into a scary thing. And if you accidentally take too much, it can make you feel that way for a little while. So you have to be able to calm yourself and remember Nurse Kristen said, it will pass. You'll be okay. But I say that because if anyone is new to cannabis, like I was, if you accidentally get too much, you can lay there in the bed and feel like an elephant's on your chest. Your arms are going numb. Now your lips are going numb because you're hyperventilating. You're panicking. Your voice sounds funny. Should I call 911? No, I'm not going to call 911. I'm so embarrassed. I've been there, done that. <laughs> so anyhow, without further ado, I should be quiet. And if you wanted to ask questions before, you're welcome, or we can flip right on to my, my slides. I will say that okay. I personally experienced the fact that someone with a neuroatypical brain, say on the spectrum, ADHD, et cetera, that, that they often have a very different reaction. My, my mom actually took some of what I had and had the complete opposite reaction that that I had to that particular strain and she has sensory processing disorders and you know the um the neuroatypical brain so um if if you have a very different reaction than what you're expecting that that may be an indication that you know you might want to try a different strain uh we found that out by uh, trial and error <laughs> so well and on that that's so perfect so first of all one point that also I need to make a slide for since I made these slides and I dusted them off. I went, oh, I need to put a little more, but it becomes just too much. 
But what I've experienced now with several patients since I began to understand the importance of dietary fats, which is a whole other topic, metabolic syndrome and the link to cancer recurrence, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I began to notice, and I've had three women now who were complaining that their THC-rich medicine that they had been trying to use before reaching out to me, they felt nothing. And then two women had their hubbies try it, and they were so stoned, they were scared. They were not eating any oily fish or fish oil for, for a long time. Some of them were vegan. And just so you know, cannabinoid receptors on brain cells are supposed to, to kind of like a gasket where they plug into the cell membrane. They're supposed to have a molecule of DHA that's like in fish oil wrapped around this amazing snake-like receptor for it to properly feed and function. Two weeks after she started taking fish oil rich in DHA, she got so stoned as she said, now I know what my husband was describing, but I truly never felt anything when I took it before. That's, that's a kick in my rear that we need to talk more about food too, because that's the clue that you know, that's anti-cancer fast and everything. But anyway, that was important to realize that if you notice it doesn't work for you, make sure you're eating some oily fish or popping some fish oil. And we can talk about that more later. And then exactly what Abigail said with the um, unexpected response. Yes, Megan. You, you might cover this in your, um, I've been using cannabis for about the last five years since I got cancer. I'm in Massachusetts and, um, but my question is, I know I've been told in the past and actually I haven't tried it, but that if you get too high, you can take just plain CBD to bring it down a little. Is that true? Does CBD neutralize the high from, okay. It modulates. So again, there's not a slide because I thought, oh, that'd go too far. Wonderful question. So CBD does not bind directly I'm going to simplify a cannabinoid receptor. They really don't look like this. They look like a serpent dragon weaving back and forth through a cell membrane. But if you imagine it simplified like a satellite receptor, a satellite dish, and the THC is going to bind directly in the binding pocket. But there are these ways you can adjust and twist that receptor to make it more or less a certain reaction. CBD binds as a modulator. It's actually called an allosteric modulator. It decreases the binding intensity and changes the perception of the THC. So throughout my slides, you'll see I do include CBD as a point of discussion, but I don't usually promote high dosing except in rare cancers in some certain situations. But many times, a person can experience more anxiety or an ugly feeling instead of an elated feeling on THC. And if they add in an equal or double the amount of CBD in milligrams, it changes it from a scary experience to a happy experience or a mellower experience. So I hope that helps. It doesn't neutralize it, but it absolutely modulates the perception, as do many other ingredients that are often stripped out in commercial products. The cruder the cannabis extract, the more likely you're going to have a more mellow experience because a crude cannabis extract might have 300, 500 ingredients in it, whereas an isolated or even a carbon dioxide extracted, which are mostly left in dispensaries now, you might have five. And all I can say is 
find the one that works for you. But also, yes, CBD can be useful. And generally, I recommend a CBD dominant oil or product as well as a THC dominant. And then you can mix and match. But I'm going a little deeper. That was an excellent question. If I mention THC, THCA, CBD, or CBDA, it actually means THC-rich or CBD-rich cannabis medicines compared to isolated chemical compounds put in a little bottle or a capsule. You know, I'm finding, Abby, that it's, oh, it's okay. I was wishing I could still see your faces, but I'm going to go ahead and just um, do this. There's probably an option in my share screen. I'm just going to roll with it. So, again, I've already shared with you how I learned what I know, so I'm not meaning to skip this, but I think in the interest of getting to the meat of this, I want to make sure I have time to show you the slides. But I actually kind of hope you'll take a screenshot of that. <laughs> this helps people understand that the molecular chemical action of the chemicals we call THD and CBD, they really work in different ways and they can synergize like we talked originally. But pain, especially nerve pain, THC is usually your friend. THC, not the CBD. When people come to me and they say, well, I take a lot of CBD oil. And it really helps my arthritis pain. I calculate on their label how many milligrams of THC they got. And it's usually a couple of milligrams. But I said, you know, you probably could have used two or three milligrams of THC and gotten similar results. And they're always stunned. But once we understand THC works specifically to decrease nervous transmissions, nerve transmissions, static-like signals that can happen with seizures, can happen with uh, damaged nerves. Whenever you've got neuropathic type pain, THC is hands down the winner. Muscle spasms, same reason. I have nerve compression that's been corrected surgically, but the nerve was damaged. Sometimes my back, if I overdo things, the nerve supply in my right leg will um, contract and get almost like a multiple sclerosis spasticity where it twists like a pretzel. THC works better than any spasm reducers that a doctor prescribed. Insomnia, again, think neurologic. CBD is much more going to be an anti-inflammatory. It also can do some beneficial things, but it's not nearly as effective. So CBD is what everyone thinks they want to talk about. CBD has value. But if you're really having nausea, pain, spasms, you might look to at least little doses of THC. And so everyone's welcome if they want to take a screenshot, if it's helpful. And moving on. I included the FDA-approved cannabinoids because there may be people who live in a state where cannabis is illegal, and I've had a lady, she's an older lady in Alabama, and she got FDA-approved Marinol capsules, two and a half milligrams, and she added in some Charlotte's Web original formula to kind of make it a little more full spectrum because it was just isolated THC in the capsule and made her feel horrible. She added in the Charlotte's Web, and she was happy and sitting on the beach when she last talked to me years ago. She had brain mess and all this stuff going on, and it helped her with nausea. It helped her with, um, you know, just being a happier grandma, as she put it. But this is medicine, but it's isolated in the lab, a molecule like THC. And I've used it with my patients in Hawaii who didn't want to use cannabis. They wanted what was pharmaceutical before they had dispensaries there. And over and over, I saw people having tachycardia, rapid heartbeat, 
um, or nervousness, because this is just pure unadulterated THC effect, nothing um, from the whole plant that can cause what they call the entourage effect, which is mellower, but it's here. And when I give dosing information as a nurse, not a doctor, I can use this as an example and say the doses of THC I typically see people using in the two and a half, five to 10 milligram dosing range is consistent with THC rich cannabis medicines as well. So when people go to look for products and if this is new to them, these give you some ideas of starting dosing doses like two and a half milligrams, three milligrams, five milligrams. Most people can get a product and if they use it, we'll talk about routes. That's a safe zone. But if you're really nervous about it or you had a bad experience in college, start with two or three milligrams. But if you're using it and you've got a real serious problem going to sleep or your back spasm, you've got deep nerve pain, whatever the reason you want, you can see 10 milligrams is not an unreasonable dose. And that becomes really important if you ever go and get an edible at a dispensary. Some of those edibles, like a little chocolate bar smaller than my phone, could have 100 milligrams and every tiny minuscule square is 10 milligrams. Danger. Don't even take the whole section. Try half of a piece. Make sure. But it does allow you to utilize products. And I think it's important for me to make sure people understand there is an FDA-approved dose of THC. And they use it for nausea and vomiting related to chemo and appetite stimulation. So Epidiolex is the CBD. Um, and it's, it's approved for children with devastating seizure disorders that have been really hard to control. I need to deviate here for a second. I'm going to escape out, come back to the Zoom. I want to see your faces <laughs> because I want you to understand the main reason there's no research moving forward fast enough. First of all, the FDA federal government still considers it a non-medicinal plant medicine. It's not a medicine that has no value other than for abuse. They know that that's not true, but the whole topic is, do we declassify it? Do we make it a different schedule? Which schedule? But currently, THC is considered federally illegal across the board, unless it's a synthetic form, marinol. CBD, same thing, technically. But that will all change, and the legalization in the states has prompted some courageous efforts at like Duke University. They wanted to do a brain tumor uh, clinical trial using CBD and THC from plants, but they were told they had to use the isolated compounds we just mentioned, Marinol, and, and you can never get high dosing tolerated well if you use those. So they're frustrated. Another group out of Southern California wanted to do a pediatric brain tumor soaking family. Um, Sophie Ryan, Tracy Ryan is famous uh, for having a tumor that has been somewhat responsive. They're not easy to treat tumors, but the key was her mom is a real advocate and gets stuff done. And she found out for them to do a clinical trial in California, the most legal state in the union, they would have to import medicines from Canada that were considered pharmaceutical grade in Canada where it's legal and imported into the United States. Now comes the big problem. One company in the whole wide world, GW Pharmaceuticals, holds an international patent on any cannabis medicine used to prevent or treat 
cancer. All. They are responsible for funding the early research that I love to read from Madrid, Spain. The early days, the first 20 years, GW Pharmaceutical was started by an AIDS activist. He helped get cannabis legalized in California. Guy Ritchie, now he's old. The stockholders and the board members want to make money, so they're starting to clamp down. There's no way one company can test the diversity of tumors in the diverse population doing expensive product clinical trials that will then tell us all what number of milligrams of each of these things are needed. And then somebody goes and grows it in their backyard. So we've got multiple reasons that the research is slow. No profit margin. It could be grown in people's yards. You can mix and match tinctures to match the formulation, which is what I do with brain tumors. I follow the glioblastoma brain tumor research. I you know, I take the little clinical data we have on that in actual anti-cancer efforts. Um, but those are the big reasons. I didn't mean to go on. I'll go back to my slides. But that's the big reason. There's multiple ones. It won't make anybody a bunch of money. And there's an international patent for anybody who tries. Dr. Raphael Mashulam, the grandfather, grandfather, he's the grandfather, he's a grandfatherly, wonderful, conservative Israeli man who in the 1960s was asked by a U.S. politician to investigate what this cannabis stuff was or marijuana because his son got busted in the U.S. for cannabis or marijuana. And he was trying to understand how big of a deal this was really, was it harming his son's brain? So Dr. Mashulam famously did a story telling his first experience because he was a, a scientist at um, you know, a major university, Hebrew University. And in the 1960s, he went to the local police chief and carried a satchel of cannabis that was confiscated by the police back to his laboratory on the train. And I've met him and he's a sweetie. And he told me without shadow of a doubt that that international patent on GW that GW Pharmaceuticals has is the number one main reason we're not getting research. That's not as convenient as just saying it's the federal government's fault. Um, but it is interesting that in 1970 and 1971, there were studies done, it's not on this slide, on a certain form of lung cancer called Lewis lung cancer in mice. And both CBD and THC in the mice showed cancer suppression. 1970, 71, and then Nixon banned everything because, you know, the rest of that story. So, sorry, I went on. I didn't mean to become an activist here. But Epidiolex, again, I don't want to waste time on that. That's the commercial CBD isolate in a formula sweetened with sucralose. The irony is, is most mamas who've got children with, you know, all of these um, seizure disorders and irritable bowel and autism, they would never give sucralose to their child because it's well known to inflame the gut and liver. But anyhow, I'm going to test this just a little bit to make sure you know, not all cancer cells will be equally vulnerable to anti-cancer effects. I'm not sure promoting that. The immunosuppressive effects of high doses of cannabis must be outpaced by the anti-cancer effects of the cannabis dosing. This comes from the scientist's mouth. I've witnessed people get worse instead of better doesn't mean some patients might not get a benefit, but it's reckless for me to encourage anyone to do it without careful consideration and full informed consent. I tell people, if you're going to try high doses of cannabis for those purposes, you will need to make sure you have a scan in six to eight weeks 
to make sure it's doing what you want and not the opposite. So I found doctors don't even know this, unfortunately. And that's dangerous because they'll tell patients who ask, hey, I use a little cannabis here. I'm taking these oils. And the doctor's putting them on an immune therapy. It can even be a clinical trial and the patients are being told, oh, it's fine. Not fine. And I realized I could go on, but cannabis and high dosing used repeatedly will dampen down immune response, interfering with immunotherapies. And if your immune system, my immune system, is successfully suppressing the cancer really well, um, we could be calming that immune system down to where tumors could theoretically grow faster. One of the telling aspects of this is people who have autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis are some of the main people who describe high dosing of cannabis as beneficial. So um, it's a fact. Large doses are a problem. So what did I do? I listed on this page that you're welcome to screenshot with my disclaimer. These are the dosing totals that I believe are safe in a 24-hour period up to 75 to 100 milligrams of CBD and or up to 25 milligrams of THC or THCA. When you see an A after the letters THC or CBD, that means it's the raw form the plant made before it was heated or dried or aged. Um, the A represents the word acid, not burning acid. It's just the acid form. The molecule has a little extra piece on it that comes off when it's heated or aged or exposed to light. But I will use the terms kind of interchangeably, but if you see that, that's the meaning. But if you're using a little CBD oil to balance out the high or modulate your THC experience, and you like equal parts of THC and CBD in your formula, and you're using 5, 10, 20 milligrams a day, I am not worried in the slightest, and I can tell you with certainty it's safe. What's not safe is going much higher frequently on an ongoing basis. And it will suppress the immune activity in the gut as well as the brain. Again, why autoimmune disease patients really love it. But we're not trying to suppress tumors with what I'm presenting today. I'm trying to make sure you know that you have freedom as you explore different treatments with this stuff to find the things that work for you. Now, I must, must just say, the way I have my screen displayed, I can't see if anyone raises a hand, so if anyone needs me to stop for any reason, just let me know. But otherwise, I'm going to skip through here to the next thing. Um, drug interactions are absolutely linked to the dose. And CBD causes so much more drug interactions than THC. First of all, the amount of milligrams, the actual milligrams of the molecule CBD that people routinely will take are often 10 or 20 times higher than a dose of THC they would ever try to use because THC gets you high. But it's also because CBD is promoted against cancer sometimes in the 100 to 200 milligrams a day range. That guarantees drug interactions. Um, CBD also, if people are using a CBD product that's really high in CBD and really low in THC, like Charlotte's Web Original Formula, Marian Pope Daily Fifty, all of these products that are whole plant and good, they're actually looking for the THC. They just don't know it. So they're using huge doses, like 200 milligrams a day, 
so that they can get, you know, four to eight milligrams of THC. So I educate them, save all your money on all that CBD, let's get some THC. Liver function must be considered because when I interviewed all the women about eye grants, the breast cancer uh, drugs, and their experience with CBD, several ladies had apparent drug interactions at 75 milligrams of CBD a day, and they all had liver mass or impaired liver function. So again, the majority of the drug interactions appear to happen within the liver and the CYP450 pathways are the ones any pharmacy will give you counseling on. Even if they don't know that there could be drug interactions, if you have a good pharmacist that you can communicate with us on this and say, you know, I'm using this and I've heard that it can interfere with certain pathways on the next slide, I'll list them out in case you want to screenshot it. You know, your pharmacist can then help you double check. Oh, this drug has that warning, not to use the inhibitors of that pathway. Again, safety. CBD causes more drug interactions. Swallowed or oral route always causes more drug interactions than an inhaled pus or sublingual. Um, I'm not pushing anyone to smoke, but Eloise taught me. Tell people that sometimes they just need to take a hit on a joint, especially if they're new to it and they're afraid, they don't want to spend a bunch of money, have a friend roll a joint and tell them to take one tiny sip of a puff. We're not pushing smoking, but there's no harm in doing that once to just see. And then they can kind of wait and see safely with that tiny little half of a puff how they feel in 20 minutes. But the other thing is, when we inhale the cannabinoids, they get into our bloodstream through the lungs and they travel all through our body before whatever little bits are left make it to our liver. What happens with this in, is the liver is not going to process a bunch of CBD or THC then until the body absorbs most of it. When we swallow the THC or CBD, all of it is going to go through the liver. So the drug interaction risk is so much higher with swallowed formulations. What do I use? Swallowed formulations. But there are reasons. I use it before bed. I don't use it during the day. But the point is, if I were on any pharmaceuticals that had serious drug cautions, I wouldn't be afraid to tell anybody, take a puff now and then of a big pen or a little dry flower vape or something. But if you're going to swallow that CBD or THC oil, please make sure there won't be drug interactions because it could be an atorvastatin you got from your oncology or for cholesterol problems. It could be a new targeted drug like rosinia or abemocyclib with those warnings. You know, there's so many ways. So again, I'm not trying to over-caution you, but I've witnessed too much. I won't say more. <laughs> This is a page I think you might want to snap a picture of because I tried to put my summary. Oral dosing. The reason it takes a while to feel the effect and why it's famous for accidental overdose is you can eat a piece of edible cannabis, whether it's a candy or a tincture or an oil. And after a half hour, you're still sitting there going, I don't feel anything, so I eat the rest of the cookie or the candy bar. And about one or two hours later, it made it through the liver. The liver actually changed some of that form of THC into a more psychoactive version. And now you're so stoned, you're laying on the floor in the world spinning and you're terrified. My, some famous reporter did that when she went to Vegas and wrote about it, I think in the New York Times. 
But the point is oral dosing could be thought of as a long-lasting version, especially appropriate if you have chronic pain and you find a small oral dose or whatever dose works for you during the day and you want to use it, perfect. That oral dosing might include, you know, 25 milligrams or 50 milligrams of CBD too during the day. Maybe you take a little bit before breakfast, a little more before lunch, you have a siesta, you wake up and you feel good again, and you take a bigger dose at bedtime. The reason a lot of us like it is once you learn how to use it, you find a product that works for you, you can last six to 12 hours. Think of inhaled dosing as what you would use if you got up to pee at 2 a.m. and you're having trouble going back to sleep and you don't want to be stoned for your 9 a.m. doctor's appointment or taking your granddaughter to uh, the park, whatever it is. Think of inhaled dosing as almost immediate onset of the, the hopefully benefits. Less intense, shorter duration. For some people, it seems to last about two hours. Some of us are a little slower. Our metabolism is a little different. And it might last for me four hours. But it allows you to control it with a little dose, quick onset. So um, inhaled dosing quick, but shorter lasting. Oral dosing slower onset. Dangerous to redo dosing in the first hour or two. I forgot to add this. Oral dosing with cannabis. Tricky in the sense that not only does the dose matter, but these are fat-loving molecules that don't dissolve well with water. So if you take it on an empty stomach, like I did once, 10 o'clock at night before my back surgery, and I got up in the morning and I had scrambled eggs, I was stoned all day because that medicine sat inside my stomach or stuck on the way down. And when I ate an oily set of scrambled eggs because I could eat them with olive oil, oh my gosh, I was stoned for 10 hours. So remember to take a little bite of food, preferably with oil in it, something like a leftover bite of stir fry or a little piece of chocolate if you want, or a little dab of butter, something to help make sure that that oral dosing dissolves and gets processed efficiently and predictably in about an hour. The Marinol capsules that the FDA approves actually have oil in them. So for that reason, but that's the caveat there. Under the tongue, I usually don't counsel much. People like to use it sometimes, but I've seen people get irritation under their tongue from holding it too long. And when they swallow whatever's left after a few minutes, they're still going to get the oral dosing effect. But some linguals reasonable, and some dispensaries have little candies and lozenges, and you can slowly let it dissolve. So I don't go to those dispensaries out of that country in a in a county that doesn't allow dispensaries in California, but they allow you to grow. Um, so I don't see all the products as often now, but they make them. So sublinguals are out. If you really want to try to get an immediate result, if they sell sublingual sprays, um, and that can absorb in the vascular uh, tissues under the tongue and give you a little symptom relief quickly, similar to smoking or inhaled routes. But um, if the option is there, I still think a vape, a flower vape or a good quality vape is going to work better than sublingual. But again, your mileage may vary. Topical dosing, I cannot say it will not have uh, absorption through the skin because I had a guy who proved me wrong and an itchy rash, broken skin, rubbed the topical on and got stoned, THC. Never had it happen with anyone else. Topical means your muscle rubs, your neuropathy rubs. Um, it's not going to fix your deep, deep hip pain. It's not going to fix a deep pain. But on our superficial joints, 
places where the pain can be accessed, the painful insulin barriers can be accessed, pins and needles on test, topicals can be great. THC usually works better. I have a slide for that. Rectal dosing, most of it ends up in the toilet. Let's leave it there. We can talk more about it later. Rectal dosing is what a lot of people do because they say, oh, I, I can use a gram of rectal oil a day and I don't get high. Well, I guess because most of that 700 milligrams of THC you might have stuck up your butt accidentally ended up in the toilet the next morning. It doesn't absorb well in the watery colon. But of course, do I use it for colorectal cancer, sometimes prostate cancer, ovarian cancer with mess? Have I? Yes. There can be pain relief from it, but there's caveats I touch. This is my summary page for just how to choose a dose, at least my perspective. This is a screenshot you might want because it's hard to find this online, or it used to be. This is a quick and dirty list of drug interactions. Remember, I've mentioned CYP450 pathways. It's kind of enough to know that if the pharmaceutical you're prescribed has a warning about CYP450 anything, it's probably safest to wait to use your cannabis medicines or the pharmaceuticals. Don't use them together. Um, at least until you get a chance to check for drug interactions. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on that. Drug interactions, there are sample names of immunotherapies, blood thinners. A lot of THC can somewhat thin the blood a little. Tamoxifen is a prodrug, requires a certain metabolism pathway that CBD inhibits for tamoxifen to become an effective drug. So, yeah, I don't recommend oral CBD products if people are using tamoxifen, but I did a whole interview on inhaled THC being beneficial because tamoxifen, scientists discovered, bind to cannabinoid receptors in the brain that affect our mood. And I'm smiling because it made me triumphant. I'm trying to understand why some women have psychotic episodes on tamoxifen and some women did absolutely fine. And all I can say, what raised my attention to this to investigate was several women told me in my interviews with them that they were able to tolerate being on their tamoxifen as long as they could take a puff of THC, which is cannabis, a couple times a day because it made them feel normal. Blocking cannabinoid receptors on brain cells is not a good thing. It can lead to all sorts of psychotic kind of things. And so tamoxifen is a prodrug. Don't combine it with oral dosing. Most of you are probably not using it, but it is still out there. Pause for a moment on this slide. I told you about this slide. Ibrance, Cascali, Virginio, and I can now say also PARP inhibitors, like the lap rib, the cap rib, all of those that we're starting to see being used more for all sorts of cancers. Any drug interaction warning that mentions the grapefruit, or CYP, you know, we need to remember these pills are so potent. Again, this is the summary table. I actually duplicated it because I wanted to help hit home. Why would we use this? These small doses of THC, so a lot of these symptoms, I wanted you to have a quick and dirty list to help you make choices if you need help. For many people, it does reduce the amount of opiates and benzodiazepines they need, as well as anti-nausea and sleeping medicines, at least 50% for many. 
again, I know it's repetition, but if I could count, I, I would lose count how many people have had horror story experiences or they had a family member pushing them to use cannabis and they pulled up a little syringe of Rick Simpson oil and said, it's only the size of a grain of rice. I'm like, that could be 40 milligrams of THC and that little tiny mouth turned size amount of Rick Simpson oil. <laughs> know your dose. Look at the labels, ask for help. The feed dosing ranges are often helpful. So again, you're welcome to snapshot it, but I don't want to make it too late as I've already started to do. Again, the inhaled route, smoke, easy, quick, cheap, rapid, but it creates heat. It creates ash, tar, and less desirable. It's a reasonable way for many to get started. Vaporize is my inhaled route. If I'm going to use it, it heats the temperature up to where the Volatile chemicals in the cannabis flowers, where the THC and CBD are, are vaporized out or without scorching or burning the plant material. So if people have a vaporizer device and has a controllable heat setting, don't go all the way to maximum heat. Rule of thumb is go one step away, maybe two steps. But if it has a couple of different settings, low, medium, and high, start with medium. You don't need to burn this stuff up. So again, dabbed. I was humbly corrected by an oncology nurse with pancreatic cancer when I went to the Oncology Nurses Congress in 2017. And I was working at American Cannabis Nurses Association booth. And I was overheard by her saying that I was really bothered by dabs. These are these highly concentrated, sticky little concentrates. And at the time, I had family members and friends who'd come up with their propane blowtorch, and they had this blown glass device, and they put this dab of THC concentrate on it. They heat this nail first with their blowtorch, and they dribble it on there, and they're like, with this bong bang. And they get 100 or more milligrams of THC and just sit there. And there were videos circulating on YouTube of kids doing these challenges and passing out, peeing themselves, and having seizures. So I was anti-dabbing. She pulled me aside. She looked like a librarian. I have pancreatic cancer, and I work in the Oncology Infusion Center, and for me, it suppresses my tumors for three years, but I have to dab as soon as I get home. I dab, I eat my dinner, and I fall into bed, and I get up in the morning, and I go back to work. And so I now include dabbing as a viable option, not one I highly recommend, but now no, no longer people using torches or they don't need to. They can get little vaporizer type devices and they can put a little dab of this concentrate and then use it in a really well-controlled way. So in case you were surprised I mentioned dabbing, um, I, I don't have time to tell you about the story, but I had a guy with pancreatic cancer who actually thought he was going to die. He dabbed. We, he kept all of his old um, containers for the month. He came to California and was going to go out stoned. And instead of dying, his tumor shrank. Again, I'm not promoting this. Pancreatic cancer is one that everybody should have a chance to try um, because I have a long list of patients for whom that it helps suppress it. Again, sublingual route, quick onset, some get swallowed. They have trochies, lozenges itself. Oral route, slowest onset, takes about 45 to 60 minutes. I tell people if you're going to use it at bedtime, consider about an hour before early bedtime, you take your dose, 
take it with a bite of food after to make sure it gets to the tummy. Go do your evening routine. Read the book to your your child. Go brush your teeth. Let the dog out. But be ready to feel it hit you like a ton of bricks an hour from now. Because I don't want you to resist it. I want you to be ready to snuggle in bed, sink down into your pillow and mattress, whatever, everything blips out. And hopefully, I pray that's what people get to enjoy. Because when I first got that after my back surgery, it was amazing. The reason the oral route feels different than the inhaled route is this letter and it's writing in red. Much of the Delta 9 THC, which is what we call THC in the common language, Delta 9 THC is a different molecule than what gets spit out by the liver. About half or so of that version of THC we swallowed gets changed into another form of THC called 11 hydroxy, which could be up to 10 times more psychoactive. That's why edibles can be so different including how they feel six or eight hours later, that 11-hydroxy-THC makes you feel wired and weird. I'm sleeping through that, and I want anybody using this to hopefully sleep through it unless they enjoy it and want to do it for relaxation. Topical route, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but some people swear by CBD-rich topicals, and it's probably because it does work on the same receptors as capsaicin. So it's one of those things that capsaicin cream works and CBD-rich products might work topically. But THC-rich is my friend. If my arthritis is bad, so I've been a weekend warrior or um, nerve damage, symptoms, needles, numbness, tingling, aches, um, I've got carpal tunnel, so I'm grabbing my thumb, you can take a little dab of something like Bengay and add a little squirt of a high THC oil and rub it together and it works better than you by themselves. So just just know it's it's a way, but I don't do a lot of topicals. Also, a lot of times products sold in dispensers are not very potent. You'll notice they put a little bit in a fancy bottle and cream. You want potent stuff if you're going to do topical. Rectal route, have I used it? Will I use it? Yes. I use it as an additional route if we're trying to suppress tumors, which is not the topic today. And the cancer has involvement in the lymphatics around the rectum. Hard to target of any other way, and I've watched them shrink on scans. That is rare and, again, not what I recommend. And the main risk is rectal route, most of it goes in the toilet. There's a risk if people have tumors in the rectal vault or in that lower colon area, that if THC is effective in an anti-cancer way, tumors are not to be attacked from the outside. The best way to treat a tumor is to feed something into the bloodstream unless the circulation carries the anti-cancer compound into the tissues of the tumor so that if tumor cells die off, they can be cleared out by the bloodstream. When people push a colon or a suppository in the rectum and it comes up against a colon cancer or a lobular cancer, maybe that went to the colon since lobular sometimes does that, much less frequently that low. But the point is, if THC oil or suppository comes up against an external or protruding tumor and that tumor is capable of being suppressed or inhibited, you can have a massive hemorrhage, whether it's the breast tumor fungating or a colorectal tumor or a rectal suppository. And yes, I've had patients call me the next week and say, you were right. I did it anyway. I ended up in the ER. I needed emergency surgery. But do some people just 
describe it giving great pain relief for pelvic discomfort, pelvic pressure, rectal fissures. Yeah. But I just point out that you know, lipid soluble cocoa butter suppositories are the least absorbed. A pharmacist would never make a cannabis suppository out of a oil. They would always use a water base. But the bottom line is, anyone wants more info, I'm happy to answer an email for free. Just say, I need more info. I want to spend more time. Side effects. CBD, minimally psychoactive. Larger doses, some sedation, appetite suppression, can actually interfere with sleep quality and cause some diarrhea. That happens mostly with the kids that are taking massive doses to try to control seizures. That's in the 200, 300 milligram dose range, but it can affect the adults the same way in those doses. THC, negligible effects, one to three milligram. Larger doses, especially for someone who's cannabis naive, anxiety, rapid heartbeat, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, alternating, irregular heartbeat, fainting, nausea, chest pain, heavy chest, panic, lowering body temperature over and over that happens, amnesia. Do most people experience these things? No. Can everybody potentially? Yes. I have a heart pacemaker. <laughs> I have arrhythmia. I have a heart that likes to stop sometimes. I'm very careful and I'm very cognizant of the fact that we need to make sure we don't minimize the risk. But most people, as long as they take the proper kind of dosing, they'll never experience that. But interestingly, there's a terpene, an extra chemical found in cannabis plants called beta-caryophylline, has the beta-blocker effect. It helps suppress that rapid heartbeat that THC by itself can cause. So, um, yes, scientists thought that was really cool. I shared my heart rhythm changes when I added beta-caryophylline in. And they, of course, connected me to a European researcher who did this already. There's so many scientists out there, they're frustrated that this hasn't moved forward in research in humans. To wrap up again, I know you've seen this slide a couple times, but I just think it's so important for people to understand it's very safe to use cannabis. It also can help you if you know if it's a nerve pain, nausea, things like that, to just kind of have a cheat sheet, which product might be most helpful. And I left the post-traumatic stress disorder on here because I'm not a psychiatrist. I can't diagnose. Most of my clients have PTSD. They've gone through cancer treatment for a while, especially if it's recurred without any warning. PTSD is real. THC has been proven to help our combat veterans their PTSD, Dr. Mashulam explained it very elegantly. The brain can have a hard time filing away memories or thoughts into long-term storage. And when we have PTSD, we, we're having trouble taking thoughts and fears and anxieties from the front of our mind and during sleep, allowing them to get filed away, not cleared away. They're still there if we need that information. But he said it helps us forget the things that it's okay to forget. And I've loved his way of explaining it, but PTSD, THC, crucial. Um, yes, I do private consultations. You can see my email address here. Um, I didn't put Liz's on because she's really busy right now with some other things, my granddaughter. 
but um, we'll do these presentations together. But Kristen at nursekristen.com. Again, what we talked about here today, I hope gives you, and we'll talk more after, what you need to know to safely get started if you're wanting to or refine your experience or improve your experience or open up some possible options you can think about. But I no longer just do many cannabis consultations. I go deep. I want to know if a person should be going to clinical trial, especially if their treatments aren't working. I don't pretend to find all the answers. Just Abby knows that, you know, I try to stay up on, you know, how's the best way to get through PCRA? How's the best way to get genomic testing? Should we do Foundation One? Should we do Keras? They both have financial assistance. Keras is my new favorite. But the point is, I meet people where they're at, and I help sometimes get them off the crazy train of supplement lists that are spreadsheet, um, trying to block every pathway like Jane McClellan, no disrespect meant, um, you know, and help them sometimes take advantage of conventional treatment for the very first time. I'm not here to push one thing or the other. I want to help people understand their particular version of cancer and to um, help them go the direction that might make sense for them after they get a chance to ask the neutral party, someone who's been through this, um, walking through fire with people for years without going on any further, because I tend to get pretty passionate about that last point. Come back to all of you and I'll quit screen sharing. I hope I didn't just talk, talk, talk too much. Oh, no, you were fine. I just wanted to point out a couple of things in the chat. I dropped the link to the Fighting Breast Cancer with Cannabis Facebook group uh, because there are a lot of really passionate people in that group who have a lot of, um, you know, they're looking into this themselves. They're trying different things. They share, um, they share articles, et cetera. I have found that group to be a, a good group generally. There are some people in there who passionately believe in Rick Simpson oil um, and, you know, that's also not something that that I would necessarily recommend either, not from a medical perspective, but just from the perspective of there's not there's not the study that shows that those high doses are really going to make a difference. Um, I just want to reiterate, if you are exploring medical cannabis in any way, you've got to tell your doctor. You've got to tell your doctor the strain you're using and the dosage that you're using. My medical oncologist in Miami giggled at me for years. When I would tell her, no, 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 I don't need that uh, prescription for oxycodone. I'm using medical cannabis. Now she recommends everybody try it. So you can, you can, um, you know, affect how your doctors are looking at this because there isn't what they usually see. There isn't the peer-reviewed study. And so they will often be very concerned um, because doctors are very risk adverse. Right. So I found that my doctor, most of my doctors, if they don't understand something, they say no. Um, and sometimes you have to tease out, okay, why? Why are you saying no? What what is what is the issue or what is the concern? So definitely make sure you're telling your doctor everything. Um, the other thing I wanted to say too is that um, most over-the-counter products you're getting, if it's from a retail place, not not a medical dispensary most of that is not regulated in any way. And so you have no idea if you're actually getting the amount of CBD or THC that's on the package. 
And so if you have the option of getting um, supplies, then a medical dispensary that is, um, you know, regulated by whatever state you're in, that, that is safer than getting something online. Although is Charlotte's Web still something that, that you recommend, Kristen? Charlotte's Web original formula is the only formula. Now, I'm not saying their other products can't be useful, but the reason is it's still made by soaking cannabis flowers in grain or in alcohol. Then they strip the plant material out, filter it out. And so it's what we call a full spectrum. It has everything those cannabis flowers had on them in a liquid form. Then they evaporate the alcohol, leaving a thick, dark Rick Simpson oil base. And then they dissolve that into like an olive oil option or a chocolate mint option. That is their only product, to my knowledge, that is still made that way because it's a lot more expensive to make it with alcohol than it is to push a bunch of carbon dioxide through and isolate chemicals and then add some flavored oil. So Charlotte's Web Original Formula is an example of a 50 milligram CBD per milliliter and two milligrams of THC per milliliter product. Miriam's Hope Daily 50 is another almost identical product, might be cheaper, but these are products you can order over the, over the internet. So looking for a price point of five cents a milligram or less is still what I tell people, but I don't want to interfere. You're doing great. Thanks, Gabby. <laughs> no, thank you for, for saying that. We just want to make sure that you have the information as much as possible for things that are reliable. Um, now, Kristen, could you talk a little bit just about the difference between hemp and cannabis, because there's a lot of products out there that are made from hemp. Yep. And so Charlotte's Web Plant is legally by federal standards hemp because it's low enough in potency of THC. But if you see it, it's not the most impressive cannabis plant. It doesn't look like those big, huge pictures you see in you know illegal cannabis drugs, but it's a real cannabis plant. So technically, all of these plants are in the cannabis uh, family. Hemp is technically, federally, poorly defined as a cannabis preparation that has less than, I forget what it is, 0 0.07. But the bottom line is, if you know it's going to be high in THC, they don't want it to be classified as hemp. The true worldwide perspective on hemp is a plant that does not look like a regular cannabis plant. It looks like a tall, spindly stalk. It's grown for fiber and seed, soil remediation in Europe. It's a completely different looking plant. It has very small flowers with very little resin, very little even CBD on it. And some of that cheap CBD product that we used to get coming in bootleg was even from soil remediation projects in Europe and China. And they were taking truckloads of this and selling the CBD. U.S. grown, I'm not as worried. Charlotte's Web is fine, you're in Pope. And they use the term hemp for their products so that they can sell it across state lines. So buyer beware. There can be scammy things like, oh, I don't know, Dr. Merkula. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> very above, over the top. I really have a problem with him because I caught one of my patients, a lawyer no less, with his Dr. Merkula CBD oil or hemp oil. 
and he got the impression it had CBD in it. It was just an expensive bottle of hemp seed oil. So you really got to look and see. And I think with options like Miriam's Hope, or there's so many other wonderful, well-regarded um, CBD oil suppliers that you can read about in groups like Fighting Breast Cancer and friends that you have, you know, you don't have to waste your time on those junk products. Don't go to the Vegas Strip and buy a tincture. It's going to end up being an isolated compound in olive oil or some nothing. Um, there are some brands and products I'll mention, but it's not that they pay me. They're just the ones that come to mind. But there are hundreds of good products. The price point matters when you're using these things. So I just find Miriam Pope still one of my ones I'm loyal to because Miriam had a brain tumor glioblastoma and her kids opened this group as a collective a cooperative in Southern California years ago. They moved to uh, Nevada for tax reasons and the whole THC industry, the licensing and permitting cost too much because they were a nonprofit. So they just do the CBD thing now, but they are wonderful people. I will still support them. Same people making the medicine. So there are some questions here. Uh, I want to make sure I address because I've run way over time. But the person who lives and works in New York, um, you get paid to a federal entity. You're always at risk if there's federal source funding. You're probably going to be fine, but if you wanted to be careful, oh, see, the answer's there. One trick. Remember I mentioned that, Marinol? Two and a half milligrams THC capsules. They make you test positive on a drug test, but you have a legal prescription. So you won't be fired, theoretically. Some people will get a prescription from their doctor for Marinol for a couple milligram tablets, and they might get a prescription of 10 that they had to pay for out of pocket. They have that in their bag. And if they ever were subjected to a drug test, they have a federally approved pharmaceutical version. So I can't promise that that would eliminate risk, but I would absolutely not hesitate take that step if THC was something I was using and I had any concern about federal regulations. I hope that's helpful. <clears throat> I think you addressed the other questions. Other? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So strain names again, you hear me skeptical. Now I moved to California two years ago, grew up here actually living five minutes from where I spent years growing up. But the point was I came from Hawaii, which I thought of as a really bold you know, state in their cannabis regulations, California, and literally was able to drive to a dispensary across from the hospital, the cop cars all around, and walk out with six plants, waving in the breeze. I couldn't believe what I was doing to buy plants to put in the ground in California because my county allows you to grow six plants if you're on five acres or more. I did it. And thankfully, the streaming worked. I used a pre-98 Bubba Kush. I went for an old Cheech and Chong variety. So sometimes strain names are there. HER2 positive breast cancer is one I specialize in. And it is the only form of breast cancer I routinely encourage women to consider using if they're going to use it for symptoms. Let's build up tolerance to at least 25 or 40 milligrams of THC a day because we want to hit this Goldilocks dose that might offer a little tumor suppressive ability and absolutely cannot promote in that dose range. So I always recommend indica varieties for people with HRT positive, but there is no single strain name. I can say that the indica types that allow people to tolerate a higher THC dose if they're desiring to do that 
the indica varieties, whether it's called Bubba Kush or Jake's favorite bubble gum, whatever. The names don't always match. Thankfully, dispensary testing or people getting product tested, even if they grew it in their backyard, can reveal if they pay the extra $100 what terpenes and stuff are in there to help feed their beta carry off a whole other topic. But um, there's not a specific strain name. But um, there's an old indica fan for helping me sleep and stuff. And the same thing I've heard over the years, over and over, whether it's for a child or a, a woman taking it against, you know, breast cancer, the indica type, like the Kush. Kush represents a more of a Hindu Kush. These are the old heavy varieties. Best for recurrence. So now we're in a completely different territory here. The strain name is unlikely to matter much. Recurrent status what kind of cancer it is. Again, if you're using this for symptom management to get through whatever you need to get through, I don't care what the strain name is. You use what works for you and you've got my general recommendations. Um, any further discussions on recurrence, especially like HER2 positive, please set up a call. I do those calls on a pro bono basis if needed, um, but it's urgent that if people are going to try to self-experiment with this stuff, they get some counsel because there are huge variations in the way things work. But I will say, with all of that said, whether it's ovarian cancer or HER2-positive breast cancer or even estrogen-positive breast cancer, if it's beyond early stages and it's come back, I think it's right to at least converse because sometimes, for example, HER2-positive breast cancer, when it goes metastatic, the external portion of the HER2 receptor breaks off and the Herceptin can no longer bind to it. THC comes at it from a different way. Now, of course, I would also explain that we now have drugs called tyrosine kinase inhibitors that work from within the cell that will also work. I never tell people they must use cannabis, but there are reasons to further that discussion. But the more aggressive and the more metastatic it is, it kind of use you to the direction that the THD might have more potential. And I think it's going to be because of the new exciting oncology research showing that even those without HER2 positive breast cancer, that there can be some HER2 expression, especially in the metastatic lesion. So they're using in HER2, the new antibody drug conjugate with herceptin molecule and a chemo drug attached, and they're attacking even non-HER2 positive. And that's because just like the scientists in Spain told me, there could be metastatic lesions that are more HER2 positive than the original primary diagnosis. And that might be why the more aggressive and metastatic it is, the more success stories come in. But I'm not in any way implying that it works like that for even the majority of people. And so I never want people to waste time trying some cannabis-only approach when there might be an amazing therapy option we could talk about or the doctors could get them into a good trial. And so I, I talk too much, sorry, but you can tell I'm not no, that's okay. I see it as a tool in the toolbox. Yes. And yes. cannabis, cannabis yep. as a complementary care, complementary medication, not your main or traditional medication yet. Right. If if, right. if we could get it off of Schedule One, and the doctors could, um, you know, do their kind of research that they want to do, then we might be in a very different situation. But that's not where we're at right now. Um, there's more yeah. more anecdotal information than peer-reviewed studies. However, yeah, and what I experiment really good about started, yeah, is that like I can think of a sweet lady up in Canada. I mean, it broke my heart. Is she was in a tough spot? 
but she was already stage four. She was on maintenance chemo. She was out of options. She was miserable with side effects. She wasn't eating. She was skinny as a rail. And she, of course, reached out to me as using this for a cure. And I'm like, let's first start and for symptom management. And we worked together for months and she gained weight. She tolerated her treatment. She didn't have to take breaks. She had lots of good friends with her family. And then they put her on an immunotherapy, even though she had a score of zero and she was very unlikely. But I ethically had to disclose to give that a chance. You have to stop. Sadly, it didn't work, but she did get comfort from her medicine. And her husband thanked me later that it was amazing that she had this other six months of time she was able to regain her weight, tolerate treatment. And um, again, you know, that's always my foremost goal. Because if we can first show that there's no harm by these small doses, and second of all, if we can help get people capable of tolerating their treatment and successfully navigating that to hopefully better outcomes, that's a huge win. All this other discussion, sure, I'll go there if we have to. But you know, let's not forget what we can accomplish just with what we talked about today and what you've already proven, Abby, yourself and many others. Thank you all. I'm so sorry I talked too much, but I, I see you. <laughs> and thank you all for listening and tuning in week after week here on Breast Cancer Conversations. Please be mindful that all of our content and information is for educational purposes only and is never a substitute for medical advice. If you want to hang out, again, please check out survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events, where you can RSVP to our Thursday Night Thrivers weekly meetup, our Movement Monday classes, workshops, seminars, and so much more. We can also continue the dialogue online via social media. Our Instagram handle is survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, and you can follow us on Twitter at SBC underscore ORG. Until next time, keep on thriving.